Welcome to the Bible in a Year podcast. I am your host, Jay Smith. With me, as always, Jimmy Doyle and Travis Bruno. We are in chapter 11 of the Gospel of Mark. I do just want to take a moment of personal privilege to mention why uh, there has been a little bit of a delay in a few of these podcasts dealing with the Gospel of Mark. I have been working to get my mother moved out of her house and into a new spot, and so it's made our normal time of recording uh, more and more challenging. And so we are going to catch up. And we're going to get ahead, and I promise you, as much as it is within our power, that we are going to try to produce these as regularly as we can, so they'll be available before you read. And so I want to encourage you as well, is that if you are reading along with us, make sure you're engaging with us. Read-scripture.com is both a place to find the reading plan, but also a place to engage in conversation daily about the readings, because we believe that Scripture is intended to be read in community. And so encourage you to go to read-scripture.com. Gentlemen, how are we doing? Great. Doing good, Jay. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds enthusiastic. Let's get going. Mark chapter 11. This is the transition into the Passion Week. And so we had mentioned last week when we did chapter 10, uh, or two weeks ago, depending on when you listen to this, is... This is a pivot point, and so really from 11 through the end of the Gospel of Mark is what we would call the Passion Week, starting with Palm Sunday, where we celebrate Palm Sunday, which is the triumphal entry. And so we'll start reading there, and we'll do kind of our normal format. There's going to be some parts of chapter 11 that are going to have a different layer of emphasis for us as far as conversation, but we believe that all of it is equally important. So if we skip things that you feel like are important, uh, there's no really intention behind that other than uh, we wanted to do what we could to bring uh, what we know or think or question to the text in specific parts. And so let's start with chapter 11, verse 1. Now, as they approached Jerusalem near Bethpage or Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go to the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord needs it and will send it back here soon. So they went and found a colt tied at a door outside the street and untied it. Some people standing there said to them, what are you doing untying that colt? They replied as Jesus told them and the bystanders let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Both those who went ahead and those who followed kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Then Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. And after looking around at everything, he went out to Bethany with the 12, since it was already late. So this is a scene that is relatively familiar to anybody that's been in the church for any amount of time, right? Like, In most traditional churches, you're going to celebrate Palm Sunday every year. The week before Easter, uh, often there will be high celebration. People wave palm branches. And so it's very easy to read this without thinking um, any more in depth about the text. And so one of the things that we want to do as we read the scriptures is to allow them to be read for the first time or in a new way. And so as we do that, uh, I want to give some space here for Jimmy and Travis to kind of expand upon, like Jimmy specifically, when you think of the triumphant entry or the triumphal entry, uh, what are some things that you feel like are essential when it comes to contextual observations about this text? Um, You know, as far as essential, like I I think it's a matter of color and depth. 
Like if I was not a believer in Jesus and I was just a student of first century Jewish and Roman history, the this passage and everything kind of wrapping up the Gospel of Mark is uh, fascinating. And knowing some of the historical context uh, to me brings uh, it makes it three D, it makes it color, um, and it gives depth. And so. I think that a lot of times what we do is we kind of spiritualize this moment, but in the first century when this really happened, it was, uh, it would have been a highly charged political environment. It was dangerous. There'd been other rebellions against Rome, other uprisings, other proclamations against the temple and the city. Um, and those typically led to people either being executed or severely flogged and punished. And Jesus is not alone in what he does here in the sense of later on in this chapter when he finally gets into the city and, you know, the line that we use is cleanses the temple. Uh, but this is the thing that, that absolutely would have probably, I mean, this would be the thing that leads to Jesus' death, this moment, him being called the son of David, him entering the city. Um, and uh, because, so context for Christians, <clears throat> I mean, this is a Passover week and in the, in the synoptic gospels, this is Passover week and the gospel of John is Passover week. And, Passover is a celebration of liberation from bondage from, an, from a foreign power. It's Israelites being enslaved in Egypt. And every time they get together, even now, for a Passover Seder, it's about liberation. It's about being set free. And so imagine you're a Roman occupier and every year you have a holiday that everybody's commanded to keep. It's about liberation from a foreign power. And there's a reason why these movements against Rome happen during these festivals. And so the base of where, say, Pontius Pilate would be the Roman governor was actually a place called Caesarea Maritima on the Mediterranean coast. But during the festivals, and particularly during Passover, he would come to Jerusalem, the governors would come to Jerusalem. And there, if you look at images of like the Temple Mount at the time of Jesus, on the northwest corner of that image, you're going to see a fortress, and that's the Fortress Antonia, and that's where the Romans would put Roman soldiers during these festivals to overlook the Temple Mount, and they would send soldiers around to make sure that nothing happened because they were afraid of uprisings. And so now you've got Jesus coming up to Jerusalem. People are, I mean, Peter has said already in, in Mark chapter 8, when, he, when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And people say all kinds of things, and Peter says, you know, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter's saying that you're the Messiah and they expected a Messiah to liberate them from Rome. And now he's going up into Jerusalem and people are crying out, son of David. And they're, they're quoting from Psalm 118, you know, Hoshiana, like they're saying, save us now, rescue us now. And this puts Jesus on the radar as being a, a potential person that is going to lead a rebellion against Rome and shake up everything. And, um, I mean, I, I don't know what to compare that to. Um, the highly charged political moment. It's not just a spiritual thing. So, Travis, before we move on to uh, the sandwich that Mark puts here, the fig tree and the temple, uh, what are some things that, that arise in your reading of the, the entry into Jerusalem? Kind of a small question, I guess. Small and just that it, I don't think it makes a big difference, but just a curiosity thing, like how did they know and how was this organized that they knew that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, coming into the temple um, for them? 
like to, to lay down their cloaks and the palm branches and all that stuff. Like, is that a huge crowd of people? Is it, I mean, it says many, so I, I don't know what that could be. Um, and I don't know if this is the first time that Jesus has entered into Jerusalem and, and maybe the fact, like you said, that this is Passover weekend. So this is sort of the, maybe a cultural rhythm of like something was happening and Jesus was kind of the name this time around. And so they were expecting this certain thing to happen as he comes in. And so that's why they're quoting Psalm 118 and doing all those things. But, uh, that was just a, a small question. Like how, how do they know to organize this entry for Jesus after like the cult story, but obviously they were gathered, they were ready and waiting for him to come in. Right. Yeah. And I think that maybe to expand on that a little bit, Jimmy, is there, I mean, Jesus was in the Galilee region, very well-known, right. And people were already starting to make assumptions about what Jesus was. And so minimally, even if he was not very well-known in Jerusalem, but I can't imagine that he wouldn't be because the amount of Pharisees and religious leaders that have already questioned him and asked him and experienced his, I'm assuming that Jesus's identity or potential identity as the Savior or Messiah would have been at least heard of in Jerusalem at this time. And so it kind of makes sense. And then the entry with the cult, I know there's some significance to why, like there was a, and I can find it, but there was a way that for somebody that was of high esteem could basically borrow a cult from somebody and and utilize it as an entry point because of their uh, class or value or, you know, not being just a rabbi, but also like this kind of lordship. So, um, but yeah, so I wonder, Jamie, maybe you can help that as like, would his, would his popularity be what led to that kind of entry or the way he entered or, or how does that happen? Yeah, man, I think word of mouth uh, works even in an ancient agrarian culture. Like I think you got to think there's, when you picture Jesus coming up from Jericho, remember this is Passover week. So this whole line going up from Jericho to Jerusalem is full of people. It'd, it'd be like caravans of people. So you can imagine like every time there's a stopping point and someone realizes, oh, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. And in the gospel of Mark, this is the first time Jesus goes to Jerusalem. Now in the gospel of John, Jesus goes to Jerusalem many times and we would expect that Jesus has gone to Jerusalem many times, but this is like a climactic moment in the gospel of Mark. Um, but given that Mark sets the stage where it's been clearly stated that Jesus is the Messiah, I think the picture is, is that the word's out. And so the closer he gets, the more excited people are. He's staying in Bethany and uh, Bethpage, which Bethpage in Aramaic is house of the unripe fig, which is interesting. But um, so... And he's camping out on the backside of the Mount of Olives or staying in, in Bethany in somebody's house, maybe Simon and Leper's houses. So <clears throat> I think people were going around saying, he's here. He's here. It's going to happen. Something's going to happen. Um, and I think when it comes to the cult, I think the thing that in our American culture, especially suburban American culture, maybe, um, that we don't, we don't experience very much is um, hospitality culture. And that is, if you show up and say, hey, somebody needs something, people say yes. People say yes. I don't think, I don't think Jesus going and asking, sending somebody ahead to find a cult 
And then somebody saying, oh, yeah, go ahead and take it. That sounds weird to us. Like, how did they know? And how did that happen? I think in a hospitality culture, that would have been an expected response. You tell somebody that somebody has need of it and they go, okay, yeah, take it. Um, you know, in Tanzania, uh, where we've been fortunate to work with some, some churches in Tanzania and in the Congo, we were having a conversation one day about the Congo. A lot of people still use bicycles to get around. And they just leave their bicycles sitting around. Anybody can take one of those bikes at any time and use it. And it's okay. You just bring it back. Just make sure you bring it back. And um, I think that's the way it, that it would be. And if you go to the Middle East today, outside of some larger city areas, but even inside some of the city areas, the hospitality, it, this, it sounds just like this. I feel like if I went to a village in uh, the West Bank and said, hey, I need something, even as a foreigner, uh, I think the response would be, okay, yeah, take it. So uh, I just don't think that part's that shocking. Um, it's not that strange in that culture. So we're moving on to, and as I mentioned, this is one of those techniques that Mark uses when he writes his gospel is that there's two stories uh, with a story in the middle that are connected. So it's kind of like a you start one, intersect another scene, and then kind of finish the same one. And when that's done, often Mark is trying to draw attention and connection through all three of these parts. And so as you read this or hear this, and, and if you've been reading along by the time you hear this podcast, you would have already encountered this, so maybe it's worth a reread. Uh, just be thinking about that. So I'm actually going to read 12, and then just I'm going to read the whole section together. So we're going to read for just a little bit, so, so just bear with us. So verse 12. Now, the next day, as they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. Jesus was hungry. After noticing it in the, in the distance, a fig tree with leaves, he went to see if he could find any fruit on it. When he came it, to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fr fruit from you again, and his disciples heard it. Then Jesus came to Jerusalem. Jesus entered the temple uh, the temple area and began to drive out those who were selling and buying in the temple courts. He turned over the tables and the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Then he began to teach them and said, Is it not written, My house should be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have turned it into a den of robbers. The chief priests and the experts of the law heard it, and they considered how they would assassinate him. For they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed by his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out from the city. In the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered with, from the roots. Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you curse is withered. Jesus said to him, Have faith in God. I tell you the truth. If, anyone, if someone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. For this reason, I tell you, whatever you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Wherever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your father in heaven will also forgive you your sins. All right. That's a good place to stop and come back to that. So fig tree, a historic uh, image of judgment used often within scripture. Uh, and you can see this in different places throughout some of the prophets. Jesus comes up to it. He's hungry, which is an important thing just to make sure we recognize the humanity of Jesus and Mark. Uh, doesn't often. I'm not sure he actually even mentions Jesus' hunger at any point. There's some other references to that throughout Scripture. But Jesus is hungry, heading in, looks at a fig tree in leaf. Uh, if you look at the normal life cycle of a fig tree, this is 
if if we're in the kind of Passover season, which is early mid spring, your the natural life cycle of a fig tree is not going to be producing a ton of fruit. It's not going to be producing any fruit until post or towards the end of Passover, probably post Passover. Uh, and so it's not abnormal that it wouldn't have the fruit. Uh, and so that's one of the things that trips a lot of people up is why would Jesus be condemning a tree that was not was doing exactly what it was supposed to do? Um, but the best connection that I've ever been able to make is how Jesus is using this as a living parable or example about the judgment of the temple. And so uh, that's enough setup for me. So I'm going to give Travis some space, man, as you read this kind of unique uh, I think the temple story we're familiar with, I think the fig story brings up a lot of questions. Uh, what are some reflections that you came to as you read this passage? Uh, I, so, yeah, I, I made a post um, in our discussion forum the other day, and I must admit, a little proud of myself for finally like recognizing one of these sort of literary structure things um, and just kind of being able to get into it a little bit more and, and see what importance I might be able to draw out of it. And kind of, like you said, that sandwich, the the parallel between the night before going up into the temple um, and then the next day and just kind of making up my own story based on things that I hope aren't too far off um, of what Jesus might actually be going through. And um, a sort of another question I had as far as the night before. Um, so, they, you know, they do the processional thing, all that stuff. And by the time he gets to Jerusalem, it's already late. So, like, is it nighttime-ish? And um, is it normal by that point? Like, most people have kind of left the temple, left the the main city, left Jerusalem to kind of spend the night in the surrounding areas before coming back in the morning. Um, is is that accurate to assume? Maybe not totally empty, but. That's a good question. They did close the gates of the temple at night <clears throat> at some point. Oh, okay. Um, because there's stories, I, I know that there are stories about them miraculously opening in the middle of the night in Jewish literature. So that would tell me that they were closed. <clears throat> um, but I don't know. I don't know if it'd be, you know, you did a thing on the on the website, a really cool, imaginative, creative piece of Jesus coming in and it kind of being after things have been shut down. And I, that feels cool to me. I've been in places like that. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Well, in either way, um, you know, we have to assume that Jesus knows to a certain degree, like what is coming and what's, what is going to happen. Um, whether he knows exactly what the next day will be. Um, I'm sure he's aware of the typical practices that are going on in the temple during this week and all that stuff. And so just kind of that, that preparation before. Um, and yeah, and we've also talked in the, in the forums about like kind of the emotions of Jesus and what to do with this first part. And then when he comes back to the fig after and it's all shriveled up, like Jay, like you said, you know, it, it wasn't supposed to be bearing fruit at this point. So why would Jesus be upset about it? And, um, and I don't know, maybe, maybe a question I have is, you mentioned like it as a metaphor of the temple. Uh, I don't know if you can expand on that, but. Yeah. You... I mean, the way I've always read it and, and at least been taught it, or even in my own study is there's this perception of bearing fruit, but not bearing fruit is kind of one of the things that I've at least kind of imprinted onto the temple 
specifically, and, and Jimmy mentioned this earlier, specifically toward the leadership of the temple, right? Not necessarily the the structure itself, but you have, and that's also what leads to the clearing out and Jesus using these passages. I think it's from Isaiah, uh, let me back up here, but from Isaiah uh, 56, my house will be called a house of prayer for nations, but you've turned into a den of robbers, right? Which is also from Jeremiah 7. And so if you look at this, is is Jesus is looking at the structure and how distorted it has become uh, and the leadership being, and, and Jimmy alluded to this as well, is if you talk about the Essenes, like probably not, but I, I at least had remembered at some point that Jesus, that, that Jesus would have spent some time with the Essenes or in some people maybe even thought, and, and Jimmy, you can correct this, but in my memory, some people even maybe think that Jesus may have been somewhat of a part. I know John the Baptist might have been a part of the Essenes, but this is this kind of purity side of it where for them, as they retreated in order to bring uh, kind of a pure version of what God was looking for in the people. Anyway, all that to say that that him coming in and clearing out the temple is this reaction to the fact that the temple had become uh, so far distorted from what what the intention or what God's dwelling place would have been, right? Taking advantage of, I mean, you want to talk about something that is historically all over the prophet's frustration or condemnation of the people of God as their inability to seek justice and equality and, and right for people who are impoverished. Uh, and I always have resonated, and I mentioned this in, in our Advent series this past year, like don't neglect the fact that the offering for Jesus was turtle doves, right? Like Jesus was of that socioeconomic side. Uh, and so for him is to come in there and, and recognize that there were systems that were and man, it's, I don't know, man, I'm making these connections as we go, so I know I'm a little scatterbrained, but I even think about it when Paul does his whole conversation with the Corinthians about communion. It's like you're using communion as a way to differentiate between those who have and those who don't, do not, and that's not the way the kingdom of God, and and that's that's really what Jesus is also proclaiming here is like the temple is so distorted from what it's supposed to be, and so just in the same way that this fig tree will be distorted or will be withered is the temple's destruction is coming. Uh, which is both speaking towards the actual destruction, which the Mark, when Mark's gospel was written, would have been before the destruction of the temple. Is that correct, Jimmy? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it depends on when you date Mark. I, I think that the description <laughs> of the destruction of the temple in Mark probably predates the temple's destruction because it doesn't include things that happened. Whereas Matthew and Luke have things that happened in that destruction. So Matthew and Luke talk about fire. And Mark doesn't. I think that would have been included. I think Jesus was one of these first century guys that recognizes that just like in the time of Jeremiah, that the temple is is in danger of being destroyed, and they would see that as part of the corruption of the leaders of the people. And there's a warning aspect to it. I, I, I really, I mean, I wish that we could do like three podcasts on this, simply because there's these Old Testament passages will. that are being, we probably will. <laughs> There's these Old Testament passages that are be, being alluded to, being quoted. And Mark doesn't quote scripture very often. When he quotes scripture, we should like, oh, wow. So he's actually throwing something out there. He alludes to scripture a lot, but he mixes two verses. He takes that universal image from Isaiah. My house should be a house of prayer for all nations. But then he wraps it up with a quote from Jeremiah but you've made it into a den of thieves. And 
when you look at that passage, and remember that like in Jeremiah, there's not chapters at this time. It's on a scroll. When you look at Jeremiah 7 and 8, it is an anti-temple text. So I'm just going to read some of it from Jeremiah. So this is from Jeremiah chapter 7, okay? The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, from Yahweh, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, so, so God's saying to Jeremiah, go stand in the temple gates and announce this. Hear the word of Yahweh, all you people of Judah, you that have the way of hosts, Yahweh of armies, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings and let me dwell with you in this place. Let me dwell with you here. I want to. It's my house. Do not trust in the deceptive words, however, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. In other words, we have a temple. We have the house of Yahweh, and that's what makes us great. He says, don't trust that. He says, for if you truly amend your ways and your doings, and if you truly act justly one with another, if you do not oppress the, the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own hurt, then I will dwell with you in this place, in the land that I gave you of old of your ancestors forever and ever. Here you are, trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come to me and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are safe? Only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a cave of robbers in your sight? So this is where he's quoting from. This, this critique. You can't just act how you want and then come to this house and think that just by coming to the temple and going through the motions that you're going to make all of this right. I'm not going to dwell with you here. I want to, but I'm not going to do it if you keep doing these things. And then he goes on. This is, in cha- this is the next chapter. How can you say we are wise and the law of Yahweh is with us when in fact the false pen of the scribes, which is interesting because the scribes are about to come to Jesus and critique him, has made into a lie. The wise should be put to shame that should be dismayed and shaken and taken since they have rejected the word of Yahweh. What wisdom is in them? Therefore, I will give their wives to others and their fields to conquerors because from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain from prophet to priest Everyone deals falsely. And now you can see why the priests and the scribes are really getting upset with Jesus because they're tie- I think that Mark is making a point that they're tying this in with what Jeremiah says. And so then Jeremiah goes on in chapter 8. When I wanted to gather them, says Yahweh, there are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered and what I gave them has passed away from them. Right? This is from a passage that Mark is quoting and he's, encapsulating it in two stories about a fig tree that's withered, that didn't have fruit, that gets cursed and, then, and is withered. I think that this is, this is key. And then it says that Jesus goes in and he, he, he clears the temple and he leaves the city. So this is going on in, in Jeremiah chapter 8. Uh, my joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick. This is God's word through Jeremiah to his people. Hark the cry of my poor people from far and wide in the land. Is not yet, And this is the cry that's being shouted out. Is Yahweh not in Zion? Is her king not in her? And I think this idea of Jesus, Mark makes a point, Jesus left the city. He clears the temple and then he leaves the city. Now he comes back. But I think all of that's tied into this, this, this message from Jeremiah almost 600 years before to the people saying, this corruption is going to, it's not the temple that makes you safe. 
It's trusting in me. It's being obedient to me. It's dwelling with me. And I want to dwell with you, but I'm not going to let this keep happening. And it's not, the Romans aren't the problem, right? It's, it's the corruption that's taking place in this place and among my people and among my leaders. And I think the, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, they get it. And that's why they start plotting strongly. To, they've already done it since Mark chapter three, but now they're really planning on destroying Jesus. If, if you're reading this or hearing this, you know, remembering that what for, for the first thousand years of the church, nobody was reading this personally, like it was most of the time collectively heard, read together. So um, would they have, they would have made that connection because one of the questions, and this is actually also you helping me uh, in some prep for my uh, sermon on Sunday. So. Jesus often refers to, like in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 17 through 20, that the law in the prophets, uh, if you look at Matthew 22, where the commandments, you know, love, your, love the God and love your neighbor, all of the law in the prophets are wrapped up in this. Jesus drew a distinction in the law and the prophets for which for us is we're like, well, it's all part of the Old Testament, but they would have seen the Torah and the prophets as both separate yet sacred revelations of God's word and will. Is that fair? Um, yeah, I think, I mean, Torah for a Jewish person would have been the central thing. It's like our constitution. But the prophets are constantly uh, interpreting what the Torah meant and clarifying what the Torah meant from a divine revelation perspective that God is clarifying. So the rabbis, one of the rabbis says, you know, we have the Torah and one prophet simplified it to this, and one prophet simplified it to this, and then, you know, the, the real simplification is love the Lord your God with all your heart. And like coming back around back to the Torah, like, you know, what does it mean that God wants us to be a just and righteous and holy people? And, uh, and the and the prophets continually say it's not about these sacrifices; it's about living out kind of what we would say the moral aspects of the Torah. And the rabbis did the same. Um. But yeah, you don't get, uh, you know, Jesus is in the line. If, if we didn't worship Jesus as the Messiah and as the Son of God, we would see Jesus in this line of Hebrew prophets, right? He's doing what all of the Hebrew prophets do, almost all of them in the scripture do. They critique the systems of injustice. They even critique the Torah commanded sacrificial system when it's not being enacted in a just and right manner, when it's greedy. Um, and also, I wanted to say, like, Zechariah is quoted here, right? He's. He's alluding to Zechariah, Jesus coming in on a cult, which is found in Zechariah. Yeah, so I, I think maybe my question to help you kind of as you, you're answering this is, would the prophets, how well known would the prophets have been to a majority of, of Jews in the first century? Oh, completely. So, I mean, this is their text. Like this is, I, I don't know what we have in our culture anymore that people have memorized. Uh, but even in the 1800s in the United States, the Bible was pretty well known by common people because it was taught so often. But a first century Jewish culture, this is the literature of their people and has been for 1,500, you know, as soon as it started being written down, they would have been extremely familiar with this in a Jewish context. And I think Mark's audience is probably a mixed uh, Jewish, non-Jewish church. But we know from the book of Acts that, God, that Paul and, and Peter, they often went to what would be called the God-fearing Gentiles. And these were Gentiles who had been studying the scripture and had become essentially Jewish in all but circumcision. Like they were super familiar with things. Like it's, it's like 
uh, they had been prepared, you know, for the message of Jesus because they were so familiar for, with the Old Testament text. Um, so I think Mark's early Christian audience, they would have known these stories or they would have had people in their community who could have said, oh, this is a, this is a reference to Jeremiah. Let's, let's tell that story. This is a reference to Zechariah. Let's tell that story. Um, but Zechariah, like this story, the Messiah coming in on a donkey, um, you know, you go from there to the very end of Zechariah. It's uh, there's a lot of it that's about also purifying the temple and making it holy. So the last, the very last chapter of Zechariah is about making every utensil in the the in the temple uh, holy. And it ends with, and there should be no longer be any traitors, not traitor, as in somebody who goes against you, but traitor, somebody who's marketing things. There should be no longer be any traitors in the house of the of, the, of Yahweh of hosts on that day. You had the picture of, Jesus, of the Messiah coming in on a donkey, but the, the end point of Zechariah is it's a purification of the temple. And there's not going to be anybody marketing things any, there anymore. And Jesus is fulfilling this scripture. Like it's, it's the most messianic thing that you can imagine, but it's also upside down because then he leaves. He doesn't conquer. He doesn't kick the Romans out. The purification is not about getting rid of the Gentiles, uh, which is a part of the Zechariah text and a lot of the prophet texts. We're going to take care of the Gentiles. But Jesus is coming and saying, no, nah, it's something else. But he is, he is purifying the temple. He is doing that part. That feels, I don't, I don't want to quench this, but that does feel like a good stopping point for part one of chapter 11. We're going to come back with part two. Uh, and so listen to both of these and just encourage you, as we always do, just join us along in this journey, read-scripture.com. We will be finishing up Mark here during Lent and moving into Matthew And so I encourage you that if you have not caught up on Mark, uh, although it still wouldn't take a ton of time to do that, you can always join us there. But but if not, we'll we'll let you know when Matthew's on the horizon so you can join us there. So read-scripture.com. We'll be back with part two of chapter 11 here uh, in the next podcast.